Welcome to Blue Line, the podcast hosted by Blue Line, Canada's only independent national magazine for law enforcement. You've tuned in to hear compelling conversations on hot topics and trends with law enforcement professionals and personalities from across Canada. And now, a message from our sponsor, Wilfrid Laurier University. With Laurier's 100% online degree programs, you can earn your undergraduate or graduate degree from a top-ranked university with an academic and institutional tradition that is over 100 years old. Choose from a Bachelor of Arts in Policing, a Bachelor of Arts in Criminology and Policing, Master of Public Safety, and five graduate diplomas in the areas of Emergency Management, National Security, Countering Crime, Border Strategies, and GIS and Data Analytics. Transfer credits apply for basic constable training towards a BA in policing. For more information, visit www.laurierpublicsafety.ca. Hello, Blue Line podcast subscribers. We hope you're doing well and welcome back to another episode of Blue Line the podcast. I'm Brittany Schroeder, editor of Blue Line magazine. Today, we are joined by retired officer David Perez. He has over 30 years of experience working in emergency services, including being a volunteer EMT. And today we'll be chatting about his career, what he experienced after retirement from law enforcement, and most importantly, officer resilience and wellness. Thanks for joining me today, David. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity and you guys do such a great job at Blue Line Magazine. So I'm excited to be part of your mission. Thank you so much for saying that. I'm really excited for this conversation because I think this is something that's really important to talk about every day, not just, you know, today, but every day. So, so to start us off, um, can you tell me about what made you want to be a police officer in the first place? Absolutely. So it kind of goes back to my childhood. Uh, my parents had a tumultuous marriage and unfortunately it was uh, involving law enforcement in our household. And um, I, so even as a child, I saw the great work that law enforcement did in my community um, and the great work they did with kids. They had a lot of those guys that had come to our house that saw me in the community, kind of took me under their wing and um, was the role model and, and father figure that I really needed uh, and any child needs. Um, so I, that was my first exposure to that. And so as I got a little bit older into my early teens, I was 14 years old, I knew that I just wanted to help other people in the same way that I was being helped. And uh, I started out as a volunteer with the rescue squad. Uh, and I became in, interested in that because of friends that were, uh, my sister's friends, my sister's older than I am, that were doing that. And you know, I'd see them racing down the street with the blue lights on their car to the firehouse or to the rescue squad. And, like wow that's pretty cool what are they doing and then you know i was introduced to that and through that experience became friendly with more of the police officers in my community and um, saw that they were the first ones to always go in and uh, they were the first ones that were uh you know helping people so we could help people and i was like wow i want to be that guy instead and uh so as i got to college and realized uh, the opportunities that were available um it's funny because at first when i went to college i went as a pre-med major, um, but I took my first bio class. I'm like, wow, this is not going to work out well. There's no <laughs> way I can sustain, sustain this academic rigor for medical school. So I started taking public safety classes, uh, you know, criminal justice related stuff. And I was working for the Department of Public Safety for the university I was in. And I was like, this is what I want to do. This was my sweet spot. So when I uh, graduated college, 
I had done an internship with the New York City Medical Examiner's Office. It was com- kind of combining the two loves that I had at the time, which was medical and law enforcement. And uh, it was a great experience. From there, I went into being a special uh, police officer down at Seaside at the Jersey Shore. So if anybody's watched any of the uh, awesome MTV shows, they, uh, they truly exist at the Jersey Shore at Seaside. Um, so I was a police officer there for uh, two summers. And then um, they had put me through the police academy and I got hired in my hometown in East Windsor. So that's kind of the crux of where my career got started and how the evolution that got me to my hometown. That's awesome. And I feel like this is the most natural question after that little history. Can you tell us about your time as a police officer um, within the department? For sure. Uh, I had, you know, I had a pretty good career, fulfilling career for sure. Um, I was a go-getter. I loved being on the street. I loved being with the, the people in the community, which was truly why I wanted to be there in the first place was to make a difference in the place that I grew up in, a community that gave so much to me. Um, I felt a true need to give back. And I know that sounds so cliche, but I think a lot of people that go into the business have that sense of wanting to serve. Um, so I, I, I believed in that. And um, as I became more active and involved in, in the work itself, I became a field training officer. Um, then I got into uh, being a traffic safety officer, which is essentially here, um, the, taking crash reports and investigating uh, motor vehicle crashes, uh, especially uh, ones that had significant injury or fatalities. Um, and then from there, I went to be an officer in charge, uh, which our department uh, essentially would be like a field supervisor type position, uh, correcting reports, being a, you know, a team leader. And uh, from there, I had several uh, assignments in the detective bureau, uh, most of it was uh, specific, related to specific cases or work uh, that was being generated through that part of the department. Uh, and then I became a drug recognition officer, uh, expert, I should say, um, which is was the heart of my career. Uh, being a DRE, uh, I know you guys have that in Canada as well. And um, it's, for those that aren't familiar with it, it's a specific skill related to DUI, where you are uh, determining the impairment of somebody and what substance they might be under other than alcohol. Uh, and there's seven categories of drugs that are uh, associated with that. And uh, you determine, you know, impairment and you take that to court. You are a recognized expert in the court of law. So you can um, utilize those skills for, for other investigations as well. Um, but the what I truly enjoyed, I mean, the DRE stuff was awesome. I loved it. But where my heart was, was in the community policing. Uh, I love being a bike patrol officer, dare officer, um, involved with National Night Out, which I don't think you guys have up there in Canada, um, and other community events. Um, National Night Out, just as a a quick aside, is uh, an event we have here every first Tuesday of every November, where the community completely takes the day and night off. Um, There's no school, there's no sports, there's no anything. And each town and municipality hosts an event that's centralized to their community where everybody gathers and there's uh, police displays, fire displays, there's you know uh, different vendor tables and, and it's an opportunity for everybody to get together as a night out against crime. So it's uh, truly community focused, it's, it's, it's a special day. Uh, so that was kind of you know the, the heart of my career. Like I said, the, the DRE thing took up most of my time, um, but my heart was always in the community policing aspect and, and truly, again, giving back to a community that gave me so much. And, and bridging the gap, honestly, between police and the community, I thought was very important. 
throughout my 20 years, there was a lot of um, unrest through different uh, things from Ferguson to wherever else uh, that we had here in this country. And, you know, I always felt like I wanted to be that bridge. Uh, so that was, that's my career in a nutshell. That's awesome. And I'm really glad that you mentioned the DRE um, part of your career because you actually just uh, gave us an article on that topic as well, and it will be featured in our February-March issue. So anyone listening, if you want to learn more about that, that article is going to be in the February-March issue. I love also that what drew you in is like you wanted to be that bridge, like you were just saying, like, I think that is the best reason to be a police officer, you know, connecting the community and law enforcement and giving back. That's, that's amazing. Um, I appreciate that. And I think what's important for people to know is that police work is not necessarily about writing tickets, or it's not necessarily about arresting the local drunk like that. It's what people see on TV or it's what people read in the newspaper, the headlines that they think they know what our job is all about. Um, But truth be told that that's probably 5% of what we do as police officers. And we truly are community helpers. We truly are a, a bridge to what people need in their daily lives that they can't solve on them, solve on their own. Um, from you know it, the minute task of, of somebody's daily life that they can't figure out to domestic violence to, to solving homicides and everything in between. Uh, so I I love the idea of people looking past the headlines and connecting with their law enforcement community to to understand truly what the job is about. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, now kind of shifting focus to the end of your career. Um, I did say in the intro and when we were talking before, we wanted to talk about, uh, officer resilience and wellness. So keeping that in mind, can you tell me how you were feeling towards the end of your policing career? For sure. It's definitely not the highlight of my career. That's for sure. Um, but, uh, towards the end, I'd say somewhere around the 18 month out mark, uh, so about a year and a half prior to retirement, um, I was feeling disconnected. Um, uh, overwhelmed is probably not the right word, but disconnected. Uh, my heart just wasn't in it anymore like the way it was. I still love my job. I literally love my job to the last day uh, until retirement. I, I, I can't imagine having done anything else for my career. Uh, so that's not where I'm coming from. But I, I think the over the course of 20 years, you see so much, you see 90% of what you see and do are people's worst moments. Um, and when you see everybody may have, every, listen, everybody has a worst moment in their life. There's no doubt. Uh, but we see everybody's worst moment. So yeah. that builds up after a while. Um, and differently from a combat veteran who has, you know, four or six years uh, in the military, not, listen, I take nothing away from that. Those guys are, are true warriors. Um, but they will have a smaller set of things uh, that they're dealing with when they leave. Uh, we see 20 years of death by a thousand cuts. And that trauma builds up over time. And you start to become, uh, your heart just, just loses your heart. You know, you just lose heart in the job and you become disconnected from the community. You kind of lose your way from why you were there to begin with. And I think that becomes very difficult. It be, you just, your mindfulness is not in a place where it needs to be to, to maintain your own safety and the safety of the, your colleagues. So when I realized that that was an issue, I also realized that it was probably time for me to go. 
so, you know, I got to my 20 years, I got my pension, my health benefits, and it was like, you know what, uh, I've gotten this far, I need to count my blessings, and I need to move forward. Um, and retirement was, was certainly uh, in the right decision for me. That doesn't mean I don't miss it every day. Uh, that doesn't mean that I, there are days where I don't wish I was back there. Um, standing shoulder to shoulder, you know, when you have uh, public events like the funeral of these two NYPD officers that we, uh, you know, one we witnessed the other day and one that we'll see this week, and you have tens of thousands of police officers standing patch to patch along Fifth Avenue in New York City, uh, my, my heart and my soul yearns to stand there with them again, not just in that moment, but holistically. And uh, it's very difficult to walk away from that. Um, and I think that's where a lot of people struggle. But me, I, I knew it was my time. I knew it was time to go. Uh, the politics of our job was uh, something that was getting to me. Um, and it was also something I knew I couldn't change. And But I also knew it was something I couldn't work with it. So it was uh, a combination of stuff that it, it was it was time to go. So what's interesting is I think given the opportunity to take a sabbatical in law enforcement, I could have taken six months or a year off and I could have come back refreshed, renewed and probably done another five or 10 years. Yeah. Uh, and, but that's not an option in our job. And uh, I hope that someday it will be because I think that we don't have enough time off to regroup and reset. Uh, and it's unfortunate because it destroys the individual. It also destroys the individual's ability to affect their duties at work. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how that, that concept plays out over time. There's actually a department in, uh, I believe it's Indiana, that's trying that. Uh, every five years, you are three months of sabbatical. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's, uh, it'd be interesting to see how that shakes out. And if anybody yeah. else uh, catches on to that, I think it'd be great. Actually does sound like, like you said, like you, you and your mind and your body, you need time to recover from everybody's worst moment that you guys are seeing. And yeah, I, I'd never even thought of it that way before, but it's so true. The other thing that I'd love to see is uh, a diversity of assignments throughout your career. Like, you know, I went through a 30 second blip of my resume, but, and it <laughs> seems like I did a lot, but the truth is I, all those things were done within my general assigned duties. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it, I was in a smaller agency. It was 50 officers plus or minus, depending on the, on the year. And there were, not a lot of places to go or do. It's not like NYPD that's got literally 150 different units to choose from. Yeah. And uh, when you are just in this uh, routine of the same thing over and over again for 20 years, it, it, it just, that stagnancy becomes more possible. Uh, and so I think it's important for people to take time off and regroup and, or, you know, have a diversity of, of work that they're doing at work. Yeah. I think that would help a lot. Now, after you left the force, um, you told me that you had a bit of a, what we would call a honeymoon period. Absolutely. Um, you, but you also told me that uh, that came to an abrupt halt. Can you tell me all about that and what kind of happened? For sure. So, you know, I retired January 1st of 2020. Uh, it was an exciting day, an exciting time. Um, I saw a transition from what was to what could be. And I was excited about that. And, you know, the first four to six, eight weeks, you have like this longest vacation you've ever had in the last 20 years. 
you know, I think before that, the longest vacation I had, it was 20 days, which was my honeymoon back in 2004. Um, so it, it was great. It was euphoric, quite frankly. Uh, but then reality starts to set in. And you're like, crap, what am I going to do tomorrow? And, uh, and then tomorrow turns into next week. And then next week turns into next month. And then next month is like, what is going on here? Well, I, I need to keep moving forward. Uh, so I found myself after that initial euphoric period uh, to spiral down a little bit, uh, becoming a little bit depressed because I was disconnected from, you know, my people, um, my tribe. And well, I'll come back to that tribe concept in a minute. But uh, it, it was a weird feeling to not be part of something bigger than myself. And as excited as I was to be home to to be with my kids and raise my kids. And it, it, it wasn't the happiness that I thought I was seeking. Um, and don't take that the wrong way, but I love my family more than anything, but it, you also need to be fulfilled in ways that are outside of your daily duties. Um, but then COVID hit. Um, and that was, you know, March 13th to be exact of 2020. And it, uh, it changed everything. And honestly, this is going to sound bizarre. So everybody hold on to their seats for a second. Um, the, I enjoyed it. You know, obviously I was sad that people were dying. I was sad that people were getting sick. I was sad to see, uh, you know, society locking down, but I was excited that the whole world came to a complete screeching halt that allowed me a chance to catch up. Uh, so it was, I know that sounds selfish and it's like, wow, that's a horrible thing, but it's true. Like I, I felt an opportunity where everything stopped around me and it was a quiet calm that allowed me to regroup, to heal and catch up. Uh, it was in that time that I decided to establish my own business uh, as, a, well, as a public safety consultant um, which didn't actually end up going in the way that I thought it would, but uh, the, the idea of doing uh, consulting for either active shooter or anything along those lines that I was trained in, that I was interested in carrying forward, uh, seemed to be not a priority for anybody in that initial COVID period. Uh, so I had to kind of retool and rethink every couple of weeks to see where the world was going. And as we know now, Nobody knew where the world was going and it, there was no way to anticipate what could be a good thing or the next thing. Uh, and that was actually troubling for me. Uh, you know, usually we're cops are good at thinking on their feet and, and coming up with a, a plan B because plan A never works. Right. So uh, that just didn't work in this scenario. And I found myself spiraling again. And uh then you start self-medicating, you start uh, thinking other things. And um, I was just, I wasn't being the husband and father that I truly wanted to be in this time period of my life. Um, and it was difficult. Um, then of course, you know, in June of 2020, we had the George Floyd incident, which uh, sparked a whole nother set of emotions, uh, both internally for me, as well as in you know, the surrounding community. And here in New Jersey, in the Trenton area, we had our own share of riots. And uh, just like everywhere else around the country and around the world, quite frankly. Um, and again, I saw my brothers and sisters standing shoulder to shoulder um, without me there. 
without me in that line. And it was very difficult to not be part of that. Obviously, nobody wants to be part of those terrible situations, but you also want to be part of the solution. That's what we, that's who we are as cops. And uh, not being able to, to participate in that was very difficult for me. Um, and for those that were serving, they dealt with their own demons and struggles during that period. And then my one specific friend, Danny, who worked for Trenton Police Department, um, found himself in a place of betrayal. Betrayal by his department, betrayal by his community that he served, and quite frankly, betrayal at home. And uh, I saw him going down a path that was frightening to me. And uh, he eventually, on July 29th, died by suicide. And um, that was a pivot point for me in all of this. So, so much, as you can see, was happening at one time. But that was a pivot point for me. And as devastated as I was by that, the sadness, the grief, the hurt, um, the despair that I felt as a result of that, I also knew that it was a call to action for me, that not only to fix myself, um, but I never wanted one of those phone calls ever again. And I knew from that day forward, I was going to spiral up with no way of ever coming back down again. Awesome. So what did you do after you got that call on the 29th of July? So uh, a lot of crying, number one. Um, and, you know, our, my kids are friends with his kids. So we, there's a deep connection there. We live in the same community down the street from us. And uh, our kids go to school together. So that was very difficult. So those, you know, immediate moments and days after, obviously, there was a lot to, to think about, take care of and understand or try to understand. Of course. And um, the first thing I, like, the way my brain works is I need, I'm a problem solver. Like, I, I need to, to have my hands involved in something. I need to fix things. Uh, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. But in this case, like, we felt like we needed to do something for him something to memorialize who he was and how he lived, but not the last few weeks or months of his life and the way he died. Uh, so we organized a, you know, a great event for his kids where um, you know, law enforcement, fire, EMS communities from all over the state and throughout the uh, tri-state area, quite frankly, uh, were, came together to uh, support them and you know, parade past their house. And you know, we got very involved and, and that was where things kind of started perking up for me. And then um, I started writing. Writing was a big part of the release for me. And for anybody that hasn't tried that and is struggling with their own emotions, it allows the crazy scrambled eggs going on inside your head to live somewhere else outside of your head, but you still have those thoughts available to you to reflect upon. You still have those ideas to reflect back towards, but they're not in your head taking up space and beating each other up. Um, so I, I think it's just so important to be able to express yourself in some way, whether it's words on a piece of paper or drawings or a way that you can communicate your thoughts to others at some other point in time where they don't have to remain in your head in the meantime. So I, anybody that is struggling, I would highly recommend that you find that type of outlet. Uh, so I did, and I started writing. Uh, the writing was well-received, um, fortunately, and was never my intent to, to publish anything, but it, it did find its way into other people's hands. Um, and I also reached out to a friend of mine. His name is Michael Pellegrino. He was the chief resiliency officer for the county that we worked in, 
And he was also a retired police officer now working in this position. And uh, he's like, you know, why don't you take this program, this resiliency program that the county is offering, the state is offering. He told me about it. And I was like, oh, it's for active officers to, to put a resiliency officer within each agency. He goes, yeah, but I don't know. From everything we're talking about here, it looks like retired guys need this too. Yeah. And uh, so it's true because I realized I didn't have that connection anymore. Well, I still had the feelings of loss and the connection to those people that were still working. I no longer had an outlet to be able to communicate that or be able to be a, a resource to someone else or have a resource myself. Uh, so we decided to put a couple myself and a couple other retired guys in this uh, resiliency program as instructors. And um, we are now bringing the resiliency program throughout the state of New Jersey to retirees as well, um, which has been been amazing and reconnecting old people back together and it's like putting the band back together you know um it's great and you're also getting the opportunity to meet folks from throughout the state that you didn't necessarily know beforehand but we're all still connected at the heart so it's um it's been that's been a great experience so the resiliency program is awesome uh and by 2000 or uh, mid 2021 uh Michael had left his position as the chief resiliency officer for the county and uh, the state chief resiliency officer had left his position and they formed a new company called Resilient Minds on the Front Lines. And they're now teaching resiliency uh, to first responders throughout the country, uh, first other government organizations, as well as you know, private business as well. And I've been very fortunate uh, to have their trust to be able to be trained as one of their instructors. So uh, that's been an unbelievable experience. And I, I took that that traumatic incident of a good friend taking his own life and again used as a pivot point to now try to never get one of those phone calls again i will spend the rest of my life trying to help out other cops and other first responders veterans find their purpose find their why because that is so important um, you know we talk about being successful and what does that really mean and it doesn't everybody defines that differently but what we can all define in the same way is being significant. So success isn't, shouldn't be your goal. Significance should be. So uh, our, our, my goal is to make sure everybody that I know that's in my sphere uh, finds that level of purpose, that level of significance that makes them just a better human to themselves and to their family and to the community around them. That's amazing. I, I love that. You're like finding their why and that's needed in more places like you said it's you know starting in new jersey and like trying to get it more like across all the states and hopefully like canada is doing something like that too and you know it's it's something that officers need and i i would stand by it wholeheartedly <laughs> I, uh no it's uh you know so the united states air force actually started a resiliency program uh in the late 70s early 80s and um Part of it was uh, facilitated off of Dr. Seligman's uh, Flourish concept. Uh, he was, he's a, a psychologist, world-renowned psychologist and professor at University of Pennsylvania. And um, he brought this idea of uh, adaptive positive psychology. And uh, that's what this whole resiliency program is based off of. Okay. And uh, the Air Force took it on, then the Army took it on, uh, the FBI took it on. And uh, when we had these rash of law enforcement suicides throughout New Jersey, we're like, well, let's see what this is all about. We need something bigger and better here. Uh, so we're the first state in the country to, to adapt it as a statewide program. 
And uh, Georgia has also uh, done a great job in uh, the recent last couple of years uh, doing that as well. And uh, we actually have a very good relationship with a, a lot of the law enforcement leaders in Georgia to uh, collaborate in the resiliency programming. Uh, but that's uh, it's a huge piece. And anybody that hasn't dove into the whole idea of resiliency, I would encourage you to start by reading Dr. Seligman's book, Flourish, and uh, kind of understand what it's all about, and then find one of these programs like ours and uh, bring it into your community, uh, whatever that community is, whether it be law enforcement or other first responders, and you know, we'll go anywhere. Yeah, that would be amazing. Now, for the officers who are listening to this podcast today, what would you want to share with them? Like, do you have a piece of advice that you'd want to share in terms of wellness and resiliency or just your time on the force? So that's a great question. And wow, is it a loaded one? The, uh, there's so much, so much in there. Uh, the one thing that I'll reflect back on is actually in my, my email signature tagline and it's earn your badge every day. Uh, I think that encompasses so much. It takes on your heart, it takes on your mind, it takes on your values. And you, if you earn your badge every day, you will find a level of fulfillment and significance within your work that will not only say prevent you, but it'll certainly mitigate your um, sliding backwards. Um, and when we teach resiliency, you know, one of the things that we always say is catch yourself catching yourself. So when you see yourself starting to slide back, catch yourself catching yourself and start that spiral back up again. Uh, I think it's so important. And, you know, through the, the program that I'm fortunate enough, Resilient Minds on the Front Lines to, to be part of, that's one of the big things that we teach. Um, it's one of the big, big, you know, underlying factors of that program. Um, and I've learned so much from that myself. And I don't think any of us will ever be perfect. I know I certainly won't be. Um, but uh, I work, <laughs> but that resiliency program, it, 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 resiliency in itself, it teaches you every day to do better than you were yesterday. Uh, and as long as you can keep moving forward, you can keep catching yourself, catching yourself and, uh, and find a way to, to kind of live that purposeful, that life, be grateful, showing gratitude goes a long way. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of keeping a gratitude journal. And every day when you wake up, I don't care how insignificant you think the moment is, just write down something you're grateful for and let that be, you know, a jump off point for your day. That whole idea of positive psychology builds upon itself. And, but so does negative psychology, by the way. So you get to choose that every day, every single day, you get to choose whether you're going to be positive or negative. Um, and then, you know, it's, I don't like necessarily quoting people, but there's so many people out there that are so significantly smarter than I could ever wish to be. Um, and, you know, Tony Robbins will say you're, you're one thought away from changing your mind. And so when you find it's awesome, I, I, I've been living with that one for a couple of weeks and like, it's just, I keep coming back to it. Every time you have a moment, you're one thought away from changing your mind. And so when you find yourself in these darker moments, these darker places, um, it just takes one thought, one positive thought to turn that corner and start heading back in the other direction. So, and, and to me, that always comes back to earning your badge every day. Do something good every day to make yourself significant and to make yourself purposeful. 
So I, that's that's the, the the biggest thing I would give officers today that are still fighting the fight, that are still out there wearing their badge every day, leaving their families to go serve others. Um, earn that, earn that right to do that every single day, uh, because then you will find yourself with the ability to look yourself in the mirror every morning when you wake up, every night when you go to sleep and be proud of the person looking back, um, earn that badge every day. I like the way you phrased it, catch yourself, catching yourself, you know, keep yourself accountable. And, you know, the gratitude part, like I keep a gratitude journal as well. So I stand by that as well. Um, everything you've shared today is, I think is something that everyone needs to hear officer or not. Um, but is there anything that we didn't touch on that you wanted to say before we, we wrap this up? Uh, no, you know, and across the United States and, and I know in Canada as well, especially this last, uh, last couple of days actually was quite interesting in Canada with the truckers, uh, freedom ride. I thought was very interesting. Um, you know, our countries are so similar yet have their differences. Um, and to watch that happen in your country over the last couple of days, I thought was very interesting to me. Um, I don't want to say good or bad or indifferent. It was just interesting. And it certainly took note. And I think it's important that we, we, we remind ourselves, um, that regardless of how politics plays into everything that we're seeing today on the news, it's not real life. Um, your real life is in your home with your spouse or your family or your daily activities, the, the neighbors you see in the grocery store and uh, the, the community in which you live and serve. Uh, and I think it's so important to remember that. Mm-hmm. And 99.9% of the people do appreciate the work that law enforcement does. And the 1% that doesn't, unfortunately, are the ones that make the news. Um, so don't want, I mean, I'm not gonna say don't watch the news, but uh, <laughs> don't, don't get discouraged by watching the news because that's not real life. Um, and I have to remind myself of that all the time because I am an avid news watcher, which is probably unhealthy in itself. Um, but uh, your real life is, is in your home. It's in, it's in the life that you build in the four walls of your spouse and your children. And they are what's most important. And don't ever forget that. Um, yes, we need to provide for each other. We need to be there to, to support our homes and our families. Um, and our careers as law enforcement officers or first responders provides for that. Uh, but gosh, just remember what's important. Come home to them every day. You know, and when you are in that dark place, look at your children, look at your spouse, look at your family and remember why you are trying to make the world a better place. It's not for the talking heads on the, on the news channel. It's, it's for the people that live in your home. Um, and and I, I find that to be the easiest and most difficult thing to do all at the same time. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. And like what I hear from that as well is like, you know, look at your kids, look at your spouse, like your, your colleagues, your people in your community, you're never alone, never like, alone, never alone in any kind of situation you're going through. It's, just, you know, you have supports there for you as well. There are. And, you know, that's honestly where I'm at today and thinking and dealing with all of this is I found my tribe. Um, and my tribe is people of like-minded folks that want to help others. And, you know, I found that through a group called um, the uh, Power of Our Story. 
And uh, the facilitator of that is a woman named Sarah Carell, who is not involved in the military or in first responder life at all. Uh, she was, it's very, her story is actually quite interesting and um, would be a great opportunity for you guys to connect. Uh, she was in a sociology class getting her master's um, in uh, drug counseling. And she was sitting next to a retired Lieutenant Colonel from the military, a special operations guy who they just went out to lunch and he like just unloaded on her about how depressed he was and how sad he was. And uh, she was like, wow, there needs to be an opportunity for you guys to unload. So she started this like opportunity pre-COVID for people to get together at her house and just build a tribe of like-minded folks and talk. Um, it wasn't counseling. It wasn't anything. It was just finding new friends. And um, so COVID hits and that went online. So she developed this whole network of folks through military and first responders, law enforcement specifically, um, that, you know, we meet regularly via Zoom and check in with each other and meet each other. And we formed this tribe that, uh, honestly, I've never met these people before, literally. And some of them are like my best friends today. And uh, it's just, you find that connection with folks. And um, it's just so important to understand and be around people that are like you and have that tribe of folks that are like you. And it may not be who you think they are. Um, you know, and going back to the resiliency piece, one of the things we teach is you have to have a board of directors in your life. Oh. And, you know, the president or the CEO of that board is always going to be you. You're the ultimate decision maker. But the rest of the board, the rest of your advisors are going to be people throughout your life that are influential, some negative, some positive. You know, like my father's on my board of directors. He's long deceased, but he was a, not somebody you would take advice from. So I uh, know that decisions that he would have made, I'm like, yep, got to do the other one. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's obviously a sick way of looking at it, but the, uh, yeah, have a board of directors in your life, and it's not always going to be the people that you think. Um, but you also have the power to hire and fire them. <laughs> so it's, uh, Very true. you got, you got to know who, who's right for you. And, but yeah, find your tribe. Uh, just know who you're looking at. There's always help out there. Uh, and for me, look me up on LinkedIn if you want. Uh, you have my information. Find me, call me anytime, day or night. My contact information is there. And I will help walk you through that dark spot until you find the light. So it's um, it's important to, to be able to have somebody hold your hand until you can get to a place where you can walk on your own. And the truth is you never have to actually walk on your own. Um, once you get to that other side, there, there's plenty of people to, to keep you lifted up. Exactly. Oh, I love that. So well put. <laughs> Uh, David, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing your many experiences and your words of wisdom uh, with me and other members of law enforcement who may be listening today. Um, to all those who are listening, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Blue Line, the podcast. Be sure to check us out on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can stay up to date on all of your policing news at blueline.ca. Thank you to everyone who listened and thank you, David. Thank you so much for having me. It was such an honor to be with you and uh, good luck with uh, everything as you move forward. Thank you so much. With Laurier's 100% online degree programs, you can earn your undergraduate or graduate degree from a top-ranked university with an academic and institutional tradition that is over 100 years old. Choose from a Bachelor of Arts in Policing, Bachelor of Arts in Criminology and Policing, 
Master of Public Safety, and five graduate diplomas in the areas of emergency management, national security, countering crime, border strategies, and GIS and data analytics. Transfer credits apply for basic constable training towards a BA in policing. For more information, visit www.laurierpublicsafety.ca. Thank you for joining Blue Line, the podcast hosted by Blue Line, Canada's only independent national magazine for law enforcement. 